The Big Papa Online Network on Blog Talk Radio is on the air. What is At Eye Level? A reductio ad absurd and look at the headlines from politics to pop culture, from the corporate to the individual. Every Monday at 6 p.m. Eastern, we take a not-so-serious look at the serious issues of the day. Whether it's politics, economics, social issues, music, or old movies and TV shows, we discuss everything the corporate media overlooks while making you laugh at the absurdity of it all. Hell, you've got to have a sense of humor about life. Just look at the headlines. So join me, Matt G. And me, Doc Savage. Every Monday at 6 p.m. Eastern as we navigate the sea of trolls, talking points, and trickery. We try to figure out a way to be there when tomorrow comes. At eye level, bringing more to you. Only on the Big Papa Network on Blog Talk Radio. I'd just like to say as a public service announcement, Blog Talk Radio, go fuck yourselves. Welcome to what's maybe one of the last freaking shows we do on this shit network. Uh, <laughs> weird things inside the gold mine. You're such a good all things wild and wonderful in the world of cult entertainment. Uh, drop in for a spell and join me, Doc Savage, and my co-host, Louis Paul, whatever network we wind up working on that will actually give you service when you, you pay for it. Uh, as we discuss the beloved, the hated, the weird, and the wonderful world of cult film, music, television, and more. We'll be covering classic films, shows, musicians, and literature of the past, with an eye towards what new visions may still arise from the soulfully derivative mire of our modern age. So tune in, turn on, and take a step outside the mainstream as we dig deep into the rich vein of cult cinema, music, and television right here on Weird Scenes Inside the Goldmine. Uh, set up at the turn of the century, then the Katsu Corporation halted production during the war years, only to return with a vengeance in the mid-50s for a long run of genre-defining cinema. From the Sun Tribe films of a new, more free-spirited youth culture, to a strong and somewhat belated Japanese take on film noir through their famed borderless action films, Nakatsu was the go-to company for such internationally faded directors as Keiichi Ozawa, Yasuharu Hasebe, Chusei Sone, Kuriyoshi Kurahara, and the much-beloved Seijin Suzuki. Introducing the world of such Asian screen icons as Akira Kobayashi, Joshishido, uh, Yujiro Ishihara, and Meiko Kaji, uh, Nakatsu would eventually leave their gangster films, action, and even pinky violence epics behind in favor of a more cost-effective and quite voluminous exclusive focus on pink film with stars like Naomi Tani, Ramasaki, and Joko Maboki into uh, join us tonight as we speak to the earlier end of the Nakatsu history as we talk Sun Tribe, Nakatsu Noir, Borderless Action, and Seijin Suzuki, only here on Weird Things Inside the Gold Mine. I'm Doc Savage. With me is my co-host, Louis Paul. And as you can hear, even despite three weeks later, because it was two weeks ago, I think it was, 
uh, when we tried to do a show and they pulled this crap last minute where they uh, refused to let us in via Skype, which is the way we usually record these things. Uh, and they said, oh, yeah, they actually added extra lines because there's like one or two lines. And every one of them was, oh, no, we can't use it. We can't use it. We can't use it. And they wouldn't let you edit episodes. There's all kinds of stuff going down. So we lost that show last minute. Uh, we took last week off because that was planned. And here we are a week later knowing about this nonsense. Okay, so can we hear each other? Are we on air? Lewis, are you there? Hello? Can you hear me? Yes, can you hear me? Yes, but I, I can't hear myself, which is unusual. I usually yeah. hear myself. I was having the same exact problem. So uh, I don't know how much anybody heard of anything because the two of us, just like on Monday's show with uh, Matt on NI Level, uh, we got stuck using this Direct Connect crap because these assholes at Blog Talk have basically sabotaged all the Skype lines. Um, usually we have like one line that we always Skype in on, and then occasionally, for whatever reason, that one doesn't work, and it gives the second one as a fallback. Uh, they actually added a third one, but two weeks ago now. They, we tried to call into this damn thing, and they blocked every single line, and they pretended that, oh, yeah, these are busy, which is bullshit. Uh, and we couldn't do the show. So is it, it went through the weekend, apparently, because I heard on IWS radio they were having problems with it. Uh, and then we did uh, at eye level, and we were having problems with it there as well. Uh, so we were all, like, direct connecting in and phone calling in and all this crap. And both weeks, especially this last week, this last Monday, both Matt and I, you know, the host and the, the supposed guest, were dropping on and off like crazy. It was, you know, taking the, the laptop microphones and not your headset. Uh, it's just complete piece of shit, this direct connect thing that they gave you. Uh, so anybody that's out there, I don't know if you heard me mention this before, but uh, who has got a podcast of some sort that is not using Blog Talk Radio and can recommend it, uh, please do contact us at either the WordPress site, um, which is uh, weirdscenes1.wordpress.com, or through our uh, Twitter, or through our Facebook page even, uh, facebook.com forward slash weirdscenes1, uh, because we are very, very interested. We're going to continue doing all our shows uh, on the Big Papa Network. It's just we are really interested in getting the hell off blog talk because uh, it's unbelievable. They charge you so much money. They give you zero customer service. And then they pull crap like this. I mean, there's no excuse. And we, we actually took a week off in between with this show. And here we are, you know, two weeks plus later, and nothing has changed. And we didn't even know what was going on because that was, like, I guess the first time they pulled on uh, two Thursdays back. We had found out through other shows and people that we're in contact with, oh, yeah, by the way, uh, they decided that they weren't going to support Skype for a couple of weeks. And they were supposed to, you know, they, they match like they're fixing it tomorrow or something. And here you are two or three weeks later and nothing's happened. You contact them. They can't help you. They push you some uh, mail server line. You say, hey, wait, you know, I lost shows here. Give me some money back to fix this damn thing. They just completely ignore you. Uh, it's it's an unbelievable service. So uh, fuck blog talk. But, I, but I, I, had, that, I couldn't get in. I couldn't get in through Skype, and I had to do direct connect, and I can't right. even hear myself. And usually I hear myself, so that's another thing that got to fix. Same thing here. Uh, that's why I'm, I don't know how much people actually heard or what I heard, or because it was all dead air on my ear. I'm like, what's going on? Mm -hmm. I didn't hear you. Yeah, same thing here. Uh, yeah. And I saw you Very drop strange. on and off a couple times. I know I dropped on and off. So anyway. That's uh, well, behind yeah, the scenes. I, I ended the call after a while because uh, I was speaking and doing uh, a couple of tests here. I'm not getting anything. I'm like, oh, shit, nobody can fucking hear me. <laughs> yep. 
And then I and then I went back in, and then uh, I just hoped that you can hear me. So now everybody can hear us. <laughs> it's actually hilarious because their original lie that they put out uh, was that, oh, yeah, we're taking away – because they actually pulled away Skype for a while. And uh, they said, oh, yeah, it was because we're getting too many complaints about Skype service or whatever or their connection with us. So now we're going to give you this direct connect thing, and it's so much worse and more buggy than Skype. Actually, one of the problems was I couldn't get on beforehand. Like I saw you came in early. Usually I get on you know, 10, 15 minutes early if I can, and I'm just sitting there waiting for the show to start, and I do other stuff and come back and whatever. I couldn't do that. It doesn't allow you to do it unless you're going to start the show then, like 15 minutes early. Oh, uh, right. You're, you're the host. Right. Okay. Yeah. Right. That's not a problem with Skype. With Direct Connect is a problem. So uh, like I said, Blog Talk has become much more of a thorn in our side than it ever was a help. Uh, so anybody that's got a recommendation for, you know, a decent service that, you know, doesn't charge a hell of a lot of money and I don't want to see too much turnkey, but more or less, you know, let's you store stuff in the cloud, audio files, you know, we can Skype in and out. Uh, basically what we've been doing all along, uh, but without dealing with these fools would be wonderful and much appreciated. So do well, contact yeah, I, one of those sites. Yeah, yeah. I don't know what's out there, though, because it looks like everybody else that I know that has a show is using this stupid service, too. I know. I know. It's like the original, like, uh, AOL back when. You know, it was like not many. Uh, yeah. There used uh, so, to be there used to be another service, but I think it probably just dried up and went away. Yeah, uh, I'm hearing that there's another one out there. I forget the name of it, but I looked at the um, the interface; didn't look that great. I hear that it's more for like <laughs> DJing, which why would you want to DJ? Uh, you know, doing this kind of stuff makes no sense. And um, you know, I don't know that many people that are actually on it. I know that some people have moved. I used to listen to uh, Black Girl Nerds, that show, and I know that they have moved off Blog Talk onto some other server. I don't know what they were. Uh, but, you know. And- Ooh, you totally disappeared. So now my co host totally disappeared, and um, <laughs> hopefully he'll be back. Um, so, yes, we were discussing, if anybody hears me, uh, we were discussing the dilemma of. Blog Talk Radio and um, having problems with our show about three weeks ago. We didn't do a show last week because we had something to do. So uh, here we are back again and we're still encountering problems like my co-host suddenly disappearing. Like, uh, what is that movie uh, where everybody on Earth disappears or most of them? Oh, Left Behind. Oh, no, he's a Christian. He's been taken away. Oh, that would be fucked up. But <laughs> no, 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 no. Uh, yeah, you guys are crazy if you believe that stuff. What the hell with you? Um, so as I'm rambling on, waiting for him to come back. Um, yes. There you are. <laughs> yep, it did it again. Uh, I don't even know what's going on here. It's disgusting. So. <laughs> See, I, I, I had told everybody that you disappeared, like in the Left Behind series. So, uh, <laughs> I said I got raptured, me and Kirk Cameron. <laughs> yeah, yeah, because what a good Christian you are. And then they decided to take you. Uh, and, and, and you don't want that to happen yet. Right. It, it someday, maybe, but not. See, they took him again. Ah, uh, see, you know, now, in the raptures, I believe, from reading these books, 
you don't know if you're taken, so you're probably in some really cool place. Maybe like with the, all your past pets and like little little piggies jumping around. So it's possible he was joking around and they decided to take him for the rapture. I'm still here because I'm evil, but uh, not evil in a bad way. Yeah, not like a Jessica Rabbit evil, you know. But you know, uh, and not like uh, Crowley evil or just like sinister evil. But Gosh, if they take in my co-host, I don't know how to run the show for the next two episodes. Because it looks like this one is going to get tanked if we can't get this working. So I don't even know if he's listening to me. So, bear with me as you're listening to, as I'm trying to see, how can I possibly save the show? Whew! This is fun. There you are. Yeah. Unbelievable. So, yeah, I'm getting double problems here because the microphone headset is giving me crap along with all the problems with blog talks. So, yeah, this is great. <laughs> are you, you, well, are we doing tonight's show or what? Because you disappear for like eight minutes. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's like this is unbelievable. Uh, we might as well try to get through it because this is just – I don't even want to think about trying to do this one again. <laughs> Yeah, so I, ba- I basically we could yeah I left off just saying uh, I talked about the directors and uh, ah yes of course I mentioned uh, screen icons but Pinky Violet's my specialty. Um, well, that was more uh, Toei. That's the trick about it. I wanted to talk Pinky Violet as well, but Nakasa was not. And they okay. They had a little bit in a way when you get into the um, the Stray Cat Rock series. But that's kind of strange in its own right. Uh, but that was really more of a Toei type thing. So we'll be covering most of that stuff or as much as we can get to with all the aggravation tonight. Uh, mm-hmm. But anyway, the bottom line is uh, back in 1912, uh, Nikatsu was floating around. Uh, but there was a whole bunch of crap that happened during the war. And film companies started consolidating and it, all this kind of stuff happened. But it wasn't really until the later 50s that Nakatsu became notable. Uh, they were doing some, you know, the usual kind of stuff that they did back then, samurai dramas and things like that. Um, historical things. It wasn't Ozu, but, you know, those kind of pictures. Um, but then there's nothing special about that. You know, that was pretty commonplace over there. But by this early 60s, all of a sudden they started, and this is, you know, late 50s, always 60s, you're playing that ballpark. They discovered something new, and that was the Sun Tribe films. Um, basically, what happened was uh, there was a novel out there. What, what happened is Japan had a similar thing to what the U.S. had with the rash of uh, J.D. films, you know, the whole thing that was going on with the rock and roll. Uh, uh, what, what in England was like the, the rockers, you know, the Maz and the rockers. Uh, we started having a lot of disaffected youth. Uh, that weren't happy with the uber conformism of their parents, especially during you know the 50s with McCarthyism and the commie scares and all that kind of stuff going on. Um, and here it was a lot more not white trash, but you know common um, everyday folks, you know people that were basically maybe their father worked in a bike shop or uh, you know was a the local druggist or whatever the hell else. 
And these kids were kind of like you see, you know, not so much in Greece, but that idea, uh, you know, the, the rolled up T-shirts with the cigarettes in the sleeve and uh, the chinos and they had all the dance crazes. They're doing stuff like the Lindy Hop. I know my father was, uh, he won a Lindy contest once. Uh, they had those uh, all night dance contests, things like that. But in Japan, it was very different because, yeah, they had a lot of that same stuff, but there it was more of a rich crowd. Uh, what was going on was after you had gotten out of the war over there, uh, the parents obviously were all traumatized by this whole thing, and they, they had to live down – kind of like Germany had lived down uh, Hitler. Over there, they had to live down the whole thing of the emperor and Tojo and you know that, that whole mentality. They had that militaristic thing that they did and what they had done to other countries, you know, China, the U.S., and Taiwan and whatever. Um, but the younger generation wasn't really as affected by this, and by the time you got to the late 50s, they were getting into a period of prosperity. I mean we were here too, but what happened is these kids were almost like upper-class kids, so they're still trying to be sort of JVs, but it's more uh, – not precious, that's not really the thing, but for Japanese culture, it's a lot more rigid. Uh, anybody that's studied any of this stuff or seen any you know, films, animes, and once you get into the culture a little bit, you see how it's got some very stratified rules. and uh, It's more than just going back to an earlier point in American history when people were more involved with politesse and things like that and uh, social rules basically for dealing with people and interacting. Uh, it's much more uptight than that. Uh, dangerously so because that's why you have a lot of suicides and things like that. And, you know, kids that can't get the perfect grade in the perfect college or whatever the hell, or you know, uh, husbands that can't bring enough money home to feed their families and that kind of stuff. Uh, being a salary man, you know, this is a big, big deal over there. Uh, I don't know so much about nowadays, but it definitely was throughout history. And what happened here was with these more um, well-off kids that were kind of. They, they kind of slept through or were too young or didn't see all the stuff that happened in the war and Nagasaki and all that kind of stuff. Uh, and they were coming up and it was like, I don't know, it was almost like they were going crazy in a lot of ways. So they would start in, in Japanese terms to some extent, but even just in regular JD terms, doing things like, you know, if you've seen some of these films, especially things like the Warp ones, uh, which was also known as uh, – what the hell is the name over here? Uh, the, the Weird Lovemakers. Uh, you know, these kids are going around and buzzing folks in their cars, you know, like walking down the street and like harassing them and basically like grabbing their purses, knocking them over, you know, hanging out of the back of convertibles. Uh, but at the same time, while they're doing the usual, okay, I'm going to smoke, I'm going to drink, I'm going to dance, I'm going to have a good time, I'm going to knock people over and not give a shit about what I'm doing, uh, be obnoxious to everybody, uh, break all the rules, if you will. They were also, you know, they're on like, they got their own sailboats and stuff, and they're basically not independently wealthy, but they had some kind of money coming from whatever, their parents or whoever it was that allowed them to do the sort of things that, you know, the everyday schmo, you know, the usual JD you're thinking of, you know, uh, Johnny Muccioni over here in uh, Brooklyn isn't going to be able to do. Um, so it gives them a strange sort of, it's almost like there's a disconnect there. It's like, well, yeah, it's sort of a recognizable JD film. And it's sort of like, you know, the rich and famous having a holiday kind of thing. Very, very strange films. Um, 
there was basically the ones that I'm aware of were either done by people like Kuryoshi uh, Kurahawa, uh, who did things like Black Sun, uh, and the, the Warp ones like I had mentioned, uh, I Hate But I Love, uh, but also Crazed Fruit. That was one of the big ones out there. Um, let's just see. I'm trying to – I got the whole thing on Kurahawa here, but – I'm just going to see if I have anything about the crazy ones. Go ahead. Before you go there, uh, while while you were like your uh, purgatory, um, <laughs> I I did mention, and and it's 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 good to note that the cinematography is really good on these things. Really oh, stark, yeah. very rich black and white. Uh, and I mentioned that. That a lot of the action scenes, and you know, not so much we're talking, you know, uh, fistic cops or even the you know, scenes involving guns, that kind of thing, but just fast movement. It's very, very well choreographed. In these things. Uh, almost like a, like a dancer, you know, uh, a dancer's choreography. Really, really well done. And uh, that's another thing that's very interesting is, is in these gangster films, which it seems that we're covering first. Right. Um, the the move, movement is a very very overlooked in my eyes a very overlooked uh, point not addressed too often even by Jasper Sharp of all people who is like the big daddy of people who covers these things I mean hats off to him you know he he's sat through more yep. than we'll ever see and he's got a he's been over there so he's got a certain you know grasp on things culture that we don't have. Well, I, I I've read his book more than once. Um, one of his uh, one of his books, a Japanese film, Katsu, much. Um, that it's not a trust that movement is a really key cool thing of the Katsu, especially with these these JD movies and these these gangster films. Yeah. Um, and it's interesting how. Portions of these this uh, thematic imagery is is shifted over into the Roman porno uh, films. No, they're not porno, folks. Well, depends. No, well, um, later on. But um, there, it's it's a key element that that that's that's what makes these things different. That's what makes them interesting. Yep. Um, and, and almost overall, none of the stories are really. Wow, you know, I, I mentioned Wu before, because uh, John Wu, well, again, disappeared. Um, who I think probably looked to these kind of films when he was younger, as well as yep. French, you know, Melville. He's always mentioning Melville, uh, Jean-Pierre Melville. Uh, but I, I'm sure he saw a lot of these type of movies, because I'm oh, yeah. sure that they also influenced him. And movement is very keen on movement. We know that from him. Yep. So, uh I actually don't buy the Melville uh, thing there because I've seen Melville, and his crime films, French crime films, are a very different animal. We talked some of that back when we did our uh, Vive la France show, and we will again when we talk the Eddie Constantine films the next season. Uh, but there's a difference there. I mean, you can see the uh, the lineage. There is definitely a connection. But once you start getting into things like not even just Seijin Suzuki, but the Japanese crime films, particularly the borderless action films of Nakatsu, uh, and even the Nakatsu noirs, there's a lot more uh, 
I don't want to say you should watch it V, but there's a lot more action. There's a lot more motion. There's a lot more uh, flash and excitement, if you will, than you get in something like a Melville. Melville is more dry and as entertaining as it can be. Uh, it, it's The French crime film is a very different animal than what you're going to see here. Um, just jumping back, though, uh, one of the big stars – I was trying to think of his name before – uh, of these early ones, the Sun Tribe films, which kind of kicked all this off, not just for Nakatsu, but what would come afterwards, uh, was a fellow named Yujiro uh, Ishihara. Um, just hold on a second. Yes, that's right. Uh, so he was in a lot of these things. I mean, he was actually in Season of the Sun, which I think was the first ever uh, of these Sun Tribe films. Uh, also in Crazed Fruit, which was the most important of them in a lot of ways. But then he just kept showing up in them. And I've, he actually was a singer as well, uh, and I've seen somewhere where they say, oh, yeah, he was like, kind of like a Japanese Elvis. I don't know if that's so true, but he definitely did carry a following like that with him over there. And then he would pop up, you know, going from the Sun Tribe films. Uh, all of a sudden, he'd start popping up in these Nakatsu Noir type things, uh, which is kind of a phrase that was uh, – I hate to say coined by uh, Criterion, but you know, with their set uh, that they put out, which was very, very good, actually. Um, that's the first time that I'd heard it referred to that way. They were kind of a border, like a transitional phase between these Sun Tribe films, uh, like we mentioned earlier, and where it would go next to the borderless action things. Uh, so he was in stuff like you know, I Am Waiting and Rusty Knife, and then later on – you know, he just kind of faded away. He, uh, he wasn't really making that much stuff after basically 1960, to be honest with you. He was very big in the mid to late 50s. Uh, and then he started doing some international stuff. I mean, he was in uh, those Magnificent Men and their Flying Machines. And those of you who are like into old school anime, he was in Arcadia of My Youth, at least as a voice actor, obviously, uh, in 1982. So... He was actually the first of the big, um, the big names that would come out of uh, not so much. Well, I, mean, I guess Nikatsu is a big part of that because that's where Sun Tribe was going on. Um, you'd start getting other people then after this, uh, which we'll get into as we go through these crime films and such. Uh, one person I definitely wanted to address was I mentioned him earlier, Kuryoshi Kurahara, because first he started off with. Uh, these Sun Tribe films, but then he was doing these noir ones as well. Uh, I don't know that he ever really got onto the uh, borderless action per se, but he was doing stuff like I Am Waiting, uh, the Warp ones I've mentioned already, uh, I Hate But I Love, Black Sun, which is insane, um, Thirst for Love. I mean, he, he has several of these things. Uh, basically, you know, you don't really want to get into plots and all these damn things because like you mentioned, a lot of this is atmosphere. A lot of this is feel. Uh, it's kind of like uh, I hate to bring it back to that again, but it's kind of like listening to black metal over listening to like you know thrash or death metal or something like that, where you're paying more attention to the skill of the musicians and you know uh, there, there's something going on there in, in a certain sense. Uh, it's more about the atmosphere and the feelings that it evokes and. Uh, the things that you're picturing in your mind, uh, that's kind of what a lot of Japanese film is, but especially once you start getting into these sort of things. Um, let's see. I'm just trying to look about anything here. Um, <laughs> what do I want to say about these? Uh, is there anything you want to pitch in? Well, I'm just going to like skim through and see if there's anything I want to mention on these particular films. 
Uh, let's see. I'm just looking. Uh, I am waiting. It's basically is one of the noirs, and the guy is basically a boxer. And it these things actually do approximate you know, the noirs and so on. They do approximate what we consider film noir as the the uh, here the cinema crowd uh, um, pigeonholed these sort of films that came in mostly B uh, pictures back in the late 40s and throughout the 50s. Um, it's got that same thing where you've got the dark atmosphere, the chiaroscuro use of shadows, uh, more so than something like a Sarno, who often gets painted with that particular brush. Uh, more like you know a Douglas Sirk or something like that, or uh, Fritz Lang when he came to the U.S. or uh, those sort of things, those sort of pictures. Um, uh, what the hell, uh, Ace in the Hole, that kind of a thing. Um, so. Basically, this one here is the guy's a boxer, and he runs into a nightclub singer, and they, he basically falls for it. They live together. They're working in this uh, dumpy little restaurant by the train tracks, basically. Uh, but, of course, you know, there's gangsters involved, and it, it starts getting more and more sordid. Uh, and a lot of these films are like that, but with Kurohara, he – always has to make it strange. I mean, it's, it's never really that straightforward. He's not quite a Seijin Suzuki, but when you get to films like Black Sun, which is about this jazz uh, jazz recording guy, and it involves you know feelings of guilt over the war, uh, because there's like a uh, American GI, this black guy there. Um, and, you know, they, they always just, I don't know, it's hard to describe this without getting into the particulars of each film. Uh, that's the real challenge I'm running into with these. It's a strange, strange, um, what can you say about it? Um, Basically, if you consider what the French called the new wave of films, thinking about stuff like Godard, you start thinking about uh, stuff like Truffaut, you start thinking about, uh, you know, Agnes Varda or uh, Louis Buñuel even, um, you start getting the idea that these are not straightforward, let's just make a programmer type film. You get the sense that the people that are making this, number one, are probably younger, and number two, are trying to throw things in there. There aren't just the usual, oh, let's make a comment on society. Let's make a comment on you know, politics, social politics. Uh, there's more going on there, and in a lot of cases, especially with somebody like Kurohara or, as we get to him later, Seijin Suzuki, it really get anarchic. Um, it's not quite, at least with uh, Kurohara, the same level as like a Louis Buñuel, uh, where it's deliberate absurdism, but it does push it sometimes. Uh, you know, there are things about some of these films, especially something like Black Sun, or especially something like uh, the the Weird Lovemakers there before, um, that are just. I, you almost feel like the the camera is like tilted sideways, and I mean you you do get those uh, skewed angle shots, but I mean it just feels like everybody is flipping out on camera, like the the script wasn't really there, and he just said, "Okay, everybody flip out and go nuts," and maybe he got them drunk before they did it. Uh, it's that kind of a feeling you get from these films. They're very strange. Um, is there anything you wanted to toss in here? 
because I'm just kind of fishing with the how am I gonna how am I gonna cover this? You know, it's, it's a difficult subject for something that I enjoy so much and I've seen a lot of. It's like how do you really get to what makes these films work? Uh, what, what are you thinking? Well, well, one of the things it's pretty freaking indescribable. And yeah, that's the problem. Yeah, and I think it's part of their appeal. Part of their appeal. I mean, you look at many of the genres that we and others, many others, have taken apart, examined, and bullshitted about over the years, written books, and blah, 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 audio commentaries, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And... No, but, you know, the funny thing is nobody really has a handle on certain things. And this is one genre that's difficult to explain. Yeah. Uh, it's one, and it's one that's, well, at least to the, the neophyte, at least to someone who's like, well, yeah, I'm familiar with these, or to someone who's like, totally, I know these are out there, but I've never seen one. They're really difficult to explain, uh, to describe even, really. I mean, you're doing a very good job of, of descriptions. Oh, thank but, you, because I didn't think so. I'm like, wow, well, how do I describe these? It's really you're exactly yeah, on point. Yeah. It's not like I don't know yeah, these films. I love them. I've seen them many times. Yeah. I've seen lots of them, and yet, how do you get across what is what makes these special? What makes them different? A French Nouvelle Vague film. What makes them different from a film noir? What makes them different from an American crime film or a French crime film or you know an Italian crime film like we covered when we did the Policia Pesci, which is later, but well, still. Well, and if I may, this might be one of the reasons why you don't see a lot of stuff written about it. You right. only see, there are only, to my belief, only a handful of books in English. Yep. Uh, we're talking about two, maybe. <laughs> uh, and I think I have them both. <laughs> yeah, we probably both do. There's, there's, a, there's like two books in English. There's not that many, not that many articles and zines. Uh, not that many, uh, not that many um, pieces have been written about this stuff. There, there are a handful for sure. As far as uh, anything on the net, I really haven't seen it, um, mm-hmm. unless somebody really uh, like Wikipedia, which is very interesting. Unless Wikipedia, somebody entered in somebody's stuff from somewhere else or took the time to type in, you know, information. And some right. people, God bless them, have done that on uh, Wikipedia for some things. It make, makes everybody's life a little easier. Um, <laughs> so, uh, there's that. But, you know, bringing it back again, it's like... How do you describe these things? They're pretty much indescribable. They're, yeah. they're an animal, a being, a culture. That you know, it's one thing. I think we know more about. Uh, now, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think we know more about Chinese culture than we do about Japanese culture, and we being Westerners. I think we can relate to it more. You know, the Japanese culture, the reason it fascinates yeah. me so much and always has, is that yeah. it's so bizarre. I mean, yes, okay, you can like to say we know China and uh, you know who is it? Uh, 
I forget, back in mixed something or other, had opened up China to the West back in the 1800s, 1850s or something. And then again, after you know the communist thing went down and all that, uh, Nixon went in there and reestablished relations with them. So a couple of times they've been closed off from us totally, closed off from the rest of the world. And yet we always were able to get in there, and the culture was never that strange. I mean it was like, okay, well, they do it this way versus the Italians do it that way versus the Africans do it this way or whatever. But it was always very comprehensible. Is Even as a language, it's extremely nuanced and poetic in the sense of – not even in the sense of like, okay, well, you could say the Romance languages are sort of poetic in a lot of ways, the way they put things, you know, their phrasing, um, their uh, – uh, not cliches, but um, they're the way they have turns of phrase, more or less, kind of like we do in America. When you say, you know, these little things that people, foreigners, don't understand, like, what do you mean by that? Uh, and you have to explain to them, oh, well, it doesn't mean what it sounds like. Literally, we're talking about X, and it comes to refer to a movie or some inside joke you would have to have known. But, you know, over the years, we just adopted it as part of our language. Uh, more than that, Japanese is a very vague language where it's got yo many characters and yo many syllable sounds that you can put into not even an infinite variety, just shuffle them around a little bit. And people sort of know – I've heard stories, and this is really going to baffle you, uh, that Japanese, especially when it comes to uh, the characters they imported from Chinese, because um, they actually have you know the kanji and the hiragana and the katakana and all that. Uh, the kanji, a lot of them only know a certain percentage of them, what they even mean. There's people that live there and grew up there and that know the language, and yet they're still like, well, I think this might mean this, or I know this one, but not those two, or you know, we've got three or five choices of what this could be referring to. It could mean turtle, it could mean mountain, it could mean box, it could mean atomic bomb. I'm like, what? <laughs> How do these even relate to each other? Uh, it's it's a very strange insular culture that people that are even part of it, either they're not telling, or it's just that odd and mysterious and not always in a good way a lot of it is like really that was it that's what you were hiding but it's it's very strange and insular culture so when you get something like these um you see it in the sun tribe films you'll see it more in noirs and you're certainly going to see it once you start getting into the later you know the borderless action and the crime films there's extra something all the time I know back in the uh, the video days, they used to say that, okay, there's different cuts for every market, and the Americans would want it a certain way. The British would want a totally cut of everything. Um, the Germans might want more, I don't know, whatever, uh, sex or blood, and the Japanese wanted the other one. Uh, it was always something a little bit extra, something a little more extreme. And when you watch these films, the first thing, especially if you've never seen Japanese film before, whether it be Chambara or whether it be Pinky Violence or whether it be you know, one of these kind of things like Sun Tribe or Borderless Action or Noir, you're going to be like, wow, there's a lot more – not even realistic. As a matter of fact, it's quite the opposite. It's more cartoony and comic booky, but more violence, uh, more uh, – I want to say more sex. That's not necessarily true, but when it is there, it's very palpably intense. You know, it's not just kind of casual and tossed off. There's a lot invested in it when you do find it. Um, 
you know, everything is more day glow. Everything is more strange. And the combinations, the way things fall, like, okay, well, you've got in this situation, you might have something that erupts into violence. In this situation, you might have something that kind of gets sexy. In this situation, you might have something that, you know, whatever, starts a dance scene or something so like that. And they'll throw it up and you'll be like, what the hell is that doing there? It, it's almost like, and not in the same way at all, but just as a metaphor, like the one I'm talking about here. Uh, it's almost like with Bollywood, where you're sitting there and you're watching a movie, and it's a monster movie, like a Ramsey Brothers film, and all of a sudden there's weird comedy in the middle of it, which, all right, that's strange enough. But then you start getting people breaking out into dance numbers while they're, like, you know, fighting a vampire or a demon or some shit. And also, here's some guy that's like a bartender, and he's going to pretend he's Michael Jackson. He's going to break out and start doing, like, beat it in the moonwalk in the middle of this while there's, like, a, a monster chasing him. I'm like, what the hell? And there's going to be a love story in the middle of it and songs. And, you know, it's, it's that sort of a uh, vibe that you have to deal with when you're dealing with Japanese cinema in particular. Uh, you know, you just even look at the music scene. I don't want to get too much into that, but let's just take the most obvious thing that Westerners are familiar with lately, which is baby metal. I mean, okay, they've got this weird manufactured, not even J-pop, it's more like idol singers, throwback to the idol singers days, uh, with these two like, you know, like nine-year-old girls and one that's maybe like 16, and then a bunch of guys that are there like – like Slipknot or whatever, going around with like, you know, masks on their heads or monster outfits like Gore and playing this kind of cheesy like new metal crap. And then all of a sudden in the middle of this, you know, bullshit like that, it breaks out into some really catchy, you know, what the hell? That's how Japan and Japanese culture is. It makes no fucking sense to anybody that isn't part of it. And, you know, that's part of what makes it fascinating. So. I, I'm sorry I missed Baby Metal because, like, everybody I knew went to see them. I'm like, I didn't know they were fucking in town. <laughs> <laughs> I knew yeah, it. I didn't you know, bother going, but... Yeah, well, you didn't tell me. Uh, but uh, <laughs> but uh, that happens a lot in New York. I, I hate that. That's for another show. That's going to be bitching about, I live in New York and I never know what's going on show. Uh, don't get me started on that. I, I, I tell you about when the Killer Barbies came through supporting the Misfits, and I didn't find out about it the day after. I'm like, fuck! <laughs> We're like huge Killer Barbies fans. We actually oh, have uh, autographs them hang on the wall and stuff. And which was that when they were at CBGBs? Uh, yeah, when they supported the Misfits on one show, and it's back in I don't know what it was. Uh, probably around two. Th- yeah, when well, that was a little later than that. It was like '98. Oh, because my wife was down here. Okay, yeah, it had to be CBGBs. But, yeah, yeah. Yep. I was invited but, yeah. for that show. I didn't go. Oh, damn. That's a double kick in the ass. <laughs> but, yeah, uh, that kind of thing happens all the time around here. So it's ridiculous. Uh, nobody tells you anything. Uh, but uh, what were we getting at here? I, I think you were trying to do another point because I brought up uh, the strangeness of Japanese culture, and that's how we get the baby metal. Mm. Okay. Oh, I, I think you are making a point that uh, I stopped. <laughs> Uh, no, no, no. I was making a point that I actually liked baby metal. I, I had no idea. Suddenly, there was a deluge of baby metal stuff uh, on social media. And mm-hmm. I was like, what is this? What is this? And I'm like, ooh, should I be looking at these cute young girls? And uh, <laughs> and it sounded very catchy, and, and I kind of liked it. And then uh, a lot of people was uh, shooting... Uh, cell phone footage of the shows they went to. And I said, you know, this isn't half bad. I've seen a lot worse. 
Yep. So, yeah, uh, I actually got both of those CDs, so it's not like I'm uh, going to sit here and mock them like some friends of mine who are hardcore metalheads would. Uh, I actually do enjoy that, and I listen to a lot of you know J-pop and J-rock, and I even have some '80s idol singer stuff. You know, I got some friends that are huge idol singer type people. Um, cool. So you know that stuff is cool by me. It's just the point being, and the reason I brought them up was the strangeness of it, the fact that the juxtapositions oh, yeah, that yeah. don't really fit. Like, why is this going together with this, and somehow it still works? It works for them. For us, it's like, what the fuck? And that's the problem with uh, trying to describe these sort of films. Um, I will say which, which, that, which is a big, a bigger, wider, much wider issue is when, uh, especially the Americans, remake Japanese films. Right. And, um, usually the big, the big, the big ones. You know, when they remake Japanese films, um, seldom are they successful. Mm-hmm. Magnificent Seven is a success. You know, uh, uh, John Sturgis, et cetera, et cetera. And actually nearly every alternative remake of that, I, I haven't seen the new ones, so I, I can't speak upon that. But, uh, you know, it's been pretty decent. Um it's kind of like a, a, a don't mess with, don't fuck with kind of policy on that, that kind of picture. Right. Meanwhile, their their giant lizard monster movies, you know, have been <laughs> debatable in their success. How's that for kindness? Right? Yeah, because I don't really hate. I don't really hate the Roland Emmerich. Uh, like really? some people just blanket. Hate it. No, it's got some interesting things going on in there. I thought that was and, so bad. <laughs> uh, see, and I think there's some entertaining stuff in there. And I don't hate the Gareth, what's his name, except for the fact that they forgot to include Godzilla in their Godzilla movie. <laughs> but, um, other than that, there's some interesting things going on in there as well. Why is it taking them five years to make a sequel to a movie that should have had one? I have... um, that being said, the new Godzilla looks horrible, made yeah. by Japanese filmmakers. The design is of the creatures horrible. It looks bad, bad, bad. And people were excited about two months ago when the trailer showed up, and then it died right away when people were like, wow, this looks like shit. So, you know, <laughs> it doesn't always come around, go around. Right. So, but back just to the stream of things. Yeah, I was going to say, just circling back, uh, just to polish off a little bit, because I know it's, I didn't really get into this too much, and people that have never encountered these things are like, what the hell are they talking about? Because, again, these are very difficult to describe. I think I think I've given at least a base introduction of the Sun Tribe films and somewhat touched on what to expect within the Cox and Noirs. But, again, it's more of what's different about it, how it doesn't match things like Melville, how it doesn't match, you know, even like Godard with Breathless or, you know, the uh, things that everybody would be looking for, like, you know, Double Indemnity or something like that. No, it's, it's not like that, the big clock, you know, no, no. But yet there's enough of it there to say, yeah, well – it's playing in the same ballpark. You know, they're, they're using the same school of thought and the same school of cinematography. And yet, you know, you get somebody like Kurohara in there. You get somebody like Seijin Suzuki in there because he started off there doing things like, you know, taking him at the police van with uh, this old, um, I think he was a, an ex-safe cracker or some crap. And he's like, you know, at this point, you know, out of jail and kind of uh, beaten down. And yet he gets in on another uh, operation which sounds like a typical simple like whatever and yet 
because it is Suzuki, it gets crazy. Um, you had the beginnings of careers of people that would become more important later, like Akira Kobayashi. Um, there, there's a film called uh, Three Seconds Before Explosion, which is – I think we're starting to get into the borderless action at that point. Uh, things like well, the other ones are Suzuki, so I won't touch on them too much yet. Uh, but you know, Rusty Knife or A Cult Is My Passport, which had Joe Shishido in it, who will become much more important later. Uh, this is a fellow that wanted to be Western so bad that he actually did something which is totally bizarre. Again, the strange Japanese thing like, who the hell would do this? He basically got surgery to make his cheeks look. I don't know what he was thinking. I thought it, he he thought it would make him look more Western or more tough or something. Really, just kind of made him look like a chipmunk. Uh, it was almost like Marlon Brando when he put the cotton in his mouth to do the Godfather. But this is obviously well before the Godfather. We're talking about like you know the early '60s here or the mid '60s. Uh, but you know, yet Joshua is a great. I hate to say great actor. That's not really it. He's a, a colorful character that you will see in a lot of films of these genres. And you're always going to say, oh, he's in it. This is probably going to be decent because he stars in the same sort of roles a lot. He's always a tough guy. He's always got something very strange going on, especially once you get into Suzuki's films. Um, and yet, you know, and you've got other people, like I mentioned before, Akira Kobayashi, who was basically just a matinee star. Uh, think of him as like the Japanese Chow Yun Fat, I guess. Uh, you know, good looking guy, uh, really kind of clean cut. And yet, can certainly kick ass. He comes off as like, yeah, okay, don't mess with him. And yet he could also play like a spy sort of thing like he did with uh, Black Tight Killers, which is another interesting one that we'll uh, mm-hmm. hopefully come to here. Um, and then, of course, you start getting into people later, which we'll get to, like uh, Miko Kaji, who really was more famous, I think, for her work in other studios, uh, which, again, you know, Toei and stuff like that. For things like the Scorpion series, uh, Female Prisoner Scorpion, uh, they have seven films there, or the Lady Snowblood films. Uh, but she did do some Nakatsu stuff, you know, uh, Blind, uh, what was it, uh, Blind Woman's Curse or something? And uh, what was the other one that she did for them? Um, oh, she did the Straight Cut Rock series. Uh, she was in several, if not all, of those films. And you know, they have a better reputation than they deserve in that particular case. I was not a huge fan of the Stray Cat Rock films, but they're interesting. They are bizarre. They're very much like uh, it, a Sun Tribe film, but done leaning towards pinky violence. So that's the closest Nakatsu gets to Pinky Boss, I think, is that series. Uh, because usually she is, guess what, uh, the, in a biker gang or you know the, the leader of some sort of female gang or the tough up-and-comer of some sort of female gang. Uh, and then occasionally they'll work in themes like Everybody Loves Sex Hunter is one of them. Uh, not Sex Hunter the film, but uh, Stray Cat Rock Sex Hunter, um, where she's uh, – well, not so much she, but there's a subplot in there uh, that becomes kind of big where there is a thing about racism because they don't like the hafus, you know, the, the guys that are basically, you know, they've slept with an American GI or, you know, a black guy or whatever the hell. And then they come out and yeah, they're part Japanese, but they're part not. And again, the insular society, the Japanese have a real issue with this more so than any other society on earth. I think, um, you know, they have a, a stratified culture where it's like, Oh, well, even with their own, like, oh, yeah, you're part Ainu or you're more Okinawan, and they will make those people. They've got some kind of weird fetish type thing where uh, – like Nami Amaro, who was big in the 90s. They'll make 
Okinawans, they're stars for music or television or whatever. They're fascinated by them. They got golden skin. They're like beach girls or whatever the hell, right? Max was another one that was big, who used to be uh, actually the Super Monkeys, who was her backup band back in the day uh, before they broke off. People like that, they're fascinated by them. They make a big deal out of them, and yet they treat them like they're second-class citizens because, oh, you know, you're not really one of us. You're really Okinawan, which is almost like being Hawaiian, or you're really Ainu, which is the original natives. You know, it's like uh, being an Aboriginal in uh, Australia uh, or Native American here. You know, uh, American Indians they used to call them. Uh, same idea. They kind of ostracize them at the same time as they put them on a pedestal. Very, very screwed up culture. And that film kind of addressed that. You know, they, they pointed out in a way that, again, you know, they try to hide their shame all the time. They, oh, yeah, we got to put on a perfect front. Japanese. Why do in the hundred this? We're the Japanese. Uh, and yet they brought this out to the front there. I think it was a Hasabe film, uh, which, again, we'll talk about him in a second. Uh, so is there anything you want to say before we move on a little bit? Oh, no, it's fine. It's going along. All right, so uh, another director that uh, should be mentioned, since we took Kurohara, is, uh, like I just mentioned, Yashihara Hasebe. Um, this guy, I think he got known more later for doing pink films and kind of rough ones. Uh, he was like um, Ishii, uh, I forget his first name, who was a, a manga guy that ended up doing these kind of uh, really outre um very politically incorrect, let's say, sort of uh, pink films. Hasabe did a lot of those later on, stuff like Assault Jack the Ripper, which is actually kind of hard to watch, or a film that's actually just called Rape, which I really did like uh, with Naomi Tani, who was a super hot uh, icon of that time. Uh, it wound up in a lot of bondage films. I'm sure you well, know her very well. Yeah, when we get to those, I mean, I mean the, unfortunately, a lot of them are hard to watch. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but Hasabe originally was doing stuff like we just talked about. He was in uh, the Straight Cut Rock series, and he was the guy that did the aforementioned Black Tide Killers, which is a crazy friggin' movie. I'm not talking about nuts. Uh, here's a movie that crosses, you know, spy films like Eurospy type stuff, which we'll be getting to in a few weeks. Um, with and we also addressed previously when we we're talking James Bond. Uh, with this sort of what do you want to call it? Uh, I guess the fumetti sort of thing, like you got with uh, Italy when you talk about films like Diabolic or Satanic or uh, Criminal, things like that. Very colorful and day glow, and yet there's still odder stuff in it. And when you look at it, does it really feel like a spy film? Well, it's kind of more like a crime film in a lot of ways. I know a lot of Eurospy kind of leans in borders. Okay, is this more of a crime film? Is it more of a spy film? But there's something about Black Tide Killers that's just so diglo and ridiculous. It was actually one of the first um, of these older Japanese films to become something of a cause celeb back in the 90s. I remember it happening on VHS, and that was one of the first things that uh, Quentin Tarantino, I think, was one of the guys that had championed this and made it uh, brought it to popularity over here. Like, oh, here, you should pay attention to this. Everybody's like, wow, what the hell is this? And, wow, this is crazy. Uh, and it, in a lot of ways, it kickstarted a lot of us on seeing more of these films, more than just the usual, like, okay, well, yeah, we've seen some Chimbara films, you know, we've seen Samurai films, basically. We've seen a couple of, you know, whatever, animes, things like that. But this was, it, it kind of kicked off seeing other odd genres of leaning towards things that we're talking about tonight. Um, the film was just nuts. Um, what can I say about it that I didn't really say? I mean, it was like, basically, these 
three, I think it was, bubblegum chewing female, uh, I guess they were supposed to be assassins, but I thought they were also working in a nightclub and doing like dance routines. So they're going around in like, you know, uh, leotards and bathing suits and stuff like that. And then all of a sudden they'll pull out a, a machine gun and start like gunning everybody down. And then they'll have the trap doors and you know, the usual spy type stuff. Uh, and it was all about finding some lost, like, I hate to say World War II, but, you know, buried gold. Uh, crazy, crazy film. Um, and then later on, he starts doing stuff like Massacre Gun, which just came out in Retaliation, which I it wasn't too hot on. They were actually a little bit boring for what I was expecting. You know, I was expecting more of like a Seijin Suzuki. I was expecting more of a Kuriyashi Kurahawa or even more of a Black Tide Killers type thing. And yet they weren't there at all. They were kind of in between. Uh, but not horrible, not horrible films at all. Arrow just put them out recently, and uh, I think both of them have Joe Shishido in it. One is a starring role, and one is a support to uh, Kobayashi. Um, then he started doing things like Bloody Territories and things like that, which were not for Nakatsu. And then he came back and started doing things, you know, the, the Stray Cat Rock series. He did uh, Sex Hunter, which I mentioned, uh, Machine Animal, um, Female Boss, which I think was the first one. And then again, he leaves and starts doing things like he did a couple of the uh, Scorpions, uh, female Scorpions uh, series, like I mentioned. I know he did the uh, Grudge Song, uh, and then he started doing the stuff later, like Assault Jack the Ripper and whatever, uh, when we start getting into the um, the actual pink films. Uh, so I don't know if there's anything else I want to say about him except that uh, we had mentioned Meiko Kaji, who had done some of these particular films, like the, uh, the Stray Cat Rock films and such and Scorpion films. Uh, who was very interesting. Another one that was originally very championed by Quentin Tarantino. Uh, very, very sexy and yet severe. She had a strange dichotomy there where this is very attractive girl, and yet she didn't really ever try to be sexy, if you want to say that. There's a very cold demeanor about her. Uh, statuesque. It's almost like... I guess if Catherine Deneuve was more of like a kick-ass modern sort of an actress, you know, like, okay, here's somebody that's going to be, I don't know what, like an Angelina Jolie or maybe, I don't really watch that stuff, like a Game of Thrones, one of those kind of things. I hear people get all excited about that. Like a tough girl that's really going to come in and beat your ass and yet sort of be sexy at the same time. Mako was like that, Um, especially once – you got into things like the uh, the Scorpion films, where she does a lot of her communication with her eyes, uh, which was interesting. You know, you don't expect that from the Japanese. Um, I'm not sure what else to say about that. Is there anything you want to toss in? Blind Woman's Curse was actually another one, and that was uh, Teruishi was the guy I was mentioning, the manga writer that became a pinky guy. Oh, Teruishi, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yep. And he was the one that did Blind Woman's Curse, which is a crazy one because I, uh, I mentioned she did stuff like um, uh, the Lady Snowblood films, you know, a bunch of samurai type films. I think she was also in a couple of those gambler films, uh, Red Peony Gambler or whatever the hell. Uh, but this was like one of those. So here she is. She's like basically a female gambler slash samurai type with the, you know, like the Yakuza where they got the one arm off and the, and uh, you know, the rest of us wearing the kimono or whatever. And she's got, she's got to do some sword fighting or whatever. But then there was all this nonsense about supernatural stuff happening in there. Uh, you know, ghosts basically and curses and uh, it's, you know, people getting skinned alive. I mean, it's just a crazy freaking film. Again, and it's like, how did all this stuff wind up together? I don't know. 
So is there anything you want to toss in? Because I'm kind of monopolizing here, trying to flounder my way through uh, explaining your stuff. No, uh, so let's see. Who else do we got here? Uh, well, I guess the most important yeah, – well, I'll leave him for last. Uh, just looking who else. Shohei Imamoro is another guy that uh, did some stuff here. Uh, let's see what he was doing for the council in particular. Uh, yeah, stuff like Stolen Desire and uh, let's see what else. Uh, the Insect Woman, uh, uh, Black Rain, uh, which was more recent. That was like in the late 80s. Uh, but oh, the pornographers, that was one reason I wanted to mention him in, in connection with Nakatsu. This is a pretty bad film. You think it's going to be better? It actually turns out to be a really serious sort of uh, almost like a melodrama about these two guys that are basically poor. So figure like um, a white trash version of Ozu, basically. You know, they're, they're living in this little dumpy apartment with the, their wives or grandmothers, wherever the hell else. Uh, they're really not making any money. Uh, either the cops or the government or somebody's after them. They try to hit them up for whatever. You owe me for this or whatever. And they figure, oh, here's a way for us to make money. Let's go start making porn films. So they're doing this, even though they've got these like supposedly like normal lives. I want to say respectable, but you know, normal lives are trying to hold down and trying to you know keep all the the wolves at bay, if you will. They're coming for them for money, or you owe me a debt, or whatever the hell else. And yet here they are, you know, okay, well, come on over, you know, here's the neighbors, bring them over for dinner or whatever. And yeah, the guy actually turns out to be making porn films. So, but it's really, it sounds better than it is. I, I found it very, very dry and dark. It's almost like an art film in that respect. Uh, you ever see that one? Mm, I did. Yeah, yeah. It, it does seem like an art film. And uh, I forgot who put that out on DVD over here and. You know, somebody like um, Janus or, you know, one of those knockoffs. There was, there was yeah. one company that put out a couple of pink films for a while, and they dropped right off the face of the earth. I mean, stuff like Tattooed Flower Vase, things like that. Uh, they put out maybe 10 of these things. There was a couple of labels like that. They were like, you know, Flash in a Pan, also ran type things. So I think that was one of them that did this. Uh, sort of, sort of like cult epics with the the Tinto Brass pictures too. You know, that's all they seem to do, and then yes. they disappear. They disappear for like six years, and then they just put out yeah. a Blu-ray of the same bad element film elements. <laughs> yeah, it's like they put out like you know, if they've got you know, let's say sixteen of these films, they put out like you know, six of them maybe on Blu-ray after all these years, and like. Well, couldn't you have done more? <laughs> really? You already got the damn things. You got the rights. You put them out before. Like, just clean them up. So I don't know. Uh, and I love Tinto Brass. You know, he's my kind of guy. He's an ass man. Uh, and he likes other things as well that I like <laughs> about women. <laughs> he's an appreciator of the female form in uh, ways that not too many people are nowadays. So uh, I definitely love true, Tinto. True, 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 true uh, indeed. Yes. But uh, I was actually just having a conversation with my wife the other day because I've got a Tinto Brass collection uh, that has a bunch of pictures, you know, from the films, like basically the covers were around. And she's like, can you turn that around? That, that one girl's like, <laughs> it looks kind of fat she's got a big ass. I'm like, oh, unfortunately, the other side's the same. I'm like, <laughs> wow. But, but yeah. Okay. Uh, yeah, exactly. I love these films. But uh, anyway. Let's see who else we're talking about. And I mentioned uh, Tetsuya Watari, I believe. I know I mentioned uh, Yujiro Shihara. Uh, I mentioned Kobayashi. Uh, I mentioned Shishido. And 
Yeah, so that's basically it on anybody else. So is there anything else you wanted to get to before I start dealing with Seiji Suzuki, which should take us through the end of the show, more or less? Okay. No. No, tell me. Good. Uh-huh. Just, you know, I know we do a lot of shit, so it's like I, I can't picture picture it that fast. Um, here's another guy that, once again, we mentioned before about Tarantino popularizing him. Uh, he was – I don't want to say obscure, but he didn't really have this wonderful reputation over there. He was kind of a guy that made a couple of films uh, for good or for bad. They were actually considered rather strange. He actually had a tremendously bad uh, reputation with the company that he worked with, especially towards the end when he started making even more artistic and uh, personal films, if you will. He started really pushing the envelope, making things bizarre than ever. Um, and he more or less got blacklisted because of it uh, and didn't work for years. He was doing other things. Uh, but yet – and they made a couple of comebacks, which weren't that great anyway. We'll get to that in a minute. Uh, but yet over here, because, again, I think from the Tarantino connection, uh, and then uh, he he kind of brought his films to attention. And then you have people like uh, Criterion and Janus and whoever the hell else bringing these films over and make them like, oh, look, here's a great art film from another corner of the world besides France and Italy and the UK and the US. Uh, and you know, made these, I don't want to say minor, I don't want to say uh, what were considered junk films at the time. Not, that isn't really what I'm trying to get at. But they were certainly not considered, like, oh, look, here's the pinnacle of Japanese culture. We want to present this to you. It was like, what? You care about him? Why? <laughs> you know, that kind of a thing. And yet, nine times out of ten, if you talk to somebody about Japanese films, especially if they're more of like an artsy type, you know, more of a, uh, the New York uh, boho sort of a crowd, uh, they're going to say, oh, Seijun Suzuki, of course, I know him. Uh, this guy, most of his work was for Nakatsu before he got blacklisted. Uh, he certainly worked often doing these sort of crime films. He certainly often cast Joe Shishido, who I mentioned before, and really effectively made him a star. It's not like he didn't work for anybody else. But most of his more significant work, most of the work people know him for, was for Suzuki. Um, basically, uh, let's see. Oh, and apparently uh, Wong Kar Wai was another one that was really excited about him. And I can sort of see that. I used to love some of those Wong Kar Wai films back when. Um, basically, his films, and I'll try to go through them uh, a little more quickly because I know you, you probably want to get to some pink stuff. Which, uh, uh Let's see. He was around since the late 50s. I'm just looking at his uh, list of films that he put out. The first one that I saw, and I love it very much, is Underworld Beauty. Uh, basically, this was very much in the uh, the vein of Black Tide Killers without being that crazy. Uh, actually, it's kind of funny because the curly figures of beauty was kind of odd-looking. Uh, but it's a 50s-ish version of um, a, a crime film, and you're leaning towards like the French crime films like we had mentioned earlier. Uh, but it's, again, more colorful. And you know, there's, there's this whole thing about a bank robbery, and a, uh, I remember them being in some underground sewer-type things where the, the uh, vault was. And, uh, of course, there were rival gang lords, and I remember the one guy was kind of old. Uh, but 
you know, it, there's more to it in terms of the visuals, the flash, the the colorfulness. It's more comic booky than anything comparable. You know, if you're gonna say, okay, well, remind me a little bit of if you mixed like an Edgar Wallace sort of film with an Eddie Constantine with Jean Pierre Melville with uh, I don't know what, uh, yeah, and put like a Japanese spin on it. Yeah, I guess it could be close to what this, you're getting with this one. And yet, it's still more colorful. Uh, I mean, the German creamies are probably the closest you get to the colorfulness that we're trying to get it all along with these Japanese films. Uh, but again, they're they're more gimmicky. They're more uh, adhere to a formula. Japanese films don't adhere to a formula, even though you can kind of lump them together. Oh yeah, these are kind of alike. They're all like individual animals, which is strange, especially when you're talking about the same director. Okay, I know his style. Well, no, you really don't. Uh, because that film that I just mentioned, The World Beauty, was really nothing like taking him at the police van, which is in, I believe, the uh, Nakatsu Noir set. Uh, and I had mentioned that earlier, which is really nothing like uh, – what the hell was that? Was he the one behind the one, two, three, go to hell bastards or whatever it was? I mean, I, oh, yeah, yeah. I love that yeah. one. Uh you know, Dynamite uh, One Two Three. So I don't think that was. I think it was another company actually. But the the Go to Hell Bastards was his for sure. Um, Detective Bureau Twenty Three. Go to Hell Bastards. That's it. Uh, which is nothing like Youth of the Witches. More of an autobiographical sort of a thing. Uh, and then you get all of a sudden he's doing you know Canto Wanderer, which is leaning towards where he's going to go later with Tokyo Drifter. Uh, you get Gate of Flesh, which is like, what? what the hell is this all about? Also, he's talking about like, you know, the the socializing problems of prostitutes and throwing Joshishito in the middle of that. Uh, then you get Story of a Prostitute. Okay, well, he's thinking along the same lines. They're fine. Then you get Tattooed Life, which is this thing about these two brothers and uh, and family in a sense, but of course it involves you know yakuza and things like that uh, in a fishing village. You know, they're out in the middle of wherever the hell they were in Kyoto or whatever. Um, then you get Towards the end, it starts getting really crazy. Fighting Elegy, which would definitely was admittedly autobiographical about his time as like a young student, revolutionary, or whatever the hell. Um, then you get Tokyo Drifter, which is, uh, you know, th- that was actually the first film of his that I was exposed to. I'm like, what the hell kind of crap is this? Because you know, I'm, <laughs> at the time it was put out on a label. It might have well have been Criterion at that point. I don't know. Uh, which was known for art films. That's why I'm like, well, it could have been Janus. It could have been, you know, there's a couple of things it could have been. Because um, this was back in the 90s, I think. But, and on VHS. But the film is like, okay, well, it's kind of Dayglo color. And then, but yet it's muted. It's like a muted palette of Dayglo color, which I don't know if that's just the bad print or what. And then there's this annoying fucking song that goes through the entire thing like a, a bad anchor song. And he's walking down like train tracks in the snow. And they keep kind of – the editing is really – I want to say bad, but it may have been deliberate. It's hard to tell what, what he was thinking. Uh, so it's like – Then didn't you get the feeling that for that movie – he might he might have been watching a few Jacques Demay films. Yeah, I, mean, I could see that, but I mean, you know, the editing. With, with, yeah, with the editing, the color, and uh, the insistence on silly songs. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, think about the story. I mean, what the hell is that all about with him? Now, if I remember correctly, he was kind of uh, 
was he a hitman or was he just trying to get in with that local mob and pass him through town? Well, uh, a little, a little bit, a little bit of it's ambiguous. A little bit ambiguous. You know, yeah, like, and it really seemed like he was failing the whole way through. It wasn't like, okay, here's our protagonist or anti-hero or whatever, and he's gonna do his thing, and or he's gonna make his big hit, and then maybe at the end something will happen to him, like he'll get his comeuppance. No, it's nothing like that. It's just kind of like, in, in a way, nothing happens in this fucking film. You know, there's no consequences. There's no cause and effect. There's no, you know, go from point A to point B to point Z. It's like, well, you're at point D, and then it kind of floats around in a circle to point F, and then back to B, and then you're at D again. Like what? <laughs> it doesn't make any sense. Uh, it's it's a bizarre film, and to this day, I have more of an appreciation for it because I've come to appreciate a lot of Suzuki's films, uh, not all of them. And still, I'm like, well, this film doesn't work as well as, you know, say, Branded to Kill, which is great. That's probably his masterwork. Insane friggin' film. Um, and then, like I said, he got blacklisted for like 10 years. He does nothing, or at least nothing in terms of uh, cinematography and film, directorial wise. Uh, and he comes back and does this strange film about a female golfer getting stalked. By some pervert, and and I think if I remember properly, because it's been a while since I've seen this one, uh, she winds up like fucking the guy, you know, as like you know part of the blackmail, uh, and he's like trying to ruin her life or whatever. Like, what is this? It, it doesn't feel like it didn't even feel like a Seijin Suzuki film. Uh, interesting for what it is, you know, like sort of this melodrama meets you know blackmail meets pinky meets slasher film, I guess in a lot of ways. I mean, you're kind of crossing genres there, but well, what the yeah, hell is but it? that's popular at that time. When he came back, I don't think they wanted what he had to offer. Well, that was the same problem all along with him. <laughs> yeah, I think I think I think what they wanted was what was actually doing well for them. Not yep. necessarily as an export, because God knows we didn't see these fucking pictures for years. Yep. But in Japan, yes. Uh, let's just see. I'm just flipping through here. Uh, well, so I mentioned taking him at the police van pretty early on. Uh, the, the star of that, like I mentioned, I thought it was an old guy. It was some guy named Michitaro Mizushima, uh, Mizushima, sorry, uh, who was 48. So basically, it was like this old, washed-up guy in real life. It wasn't just in the film. Uh, oh, he's <laughs> like, older than 48. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, basically, uh, you're talking about a genre and a film company where they were putting out, you know, a younger star, the Ujiro Shiharas, the Akira Kobayashis. Uh, even Joe Shishido was not that old, his, you know, even though he kind of looks silly with his chip on cheeks and all that. Uh, he was still kind of like, I guess, the Lee Marvin type or um, the uh, James Coburn, okay? They, they might look a little older because of the gray hair or whatever, but they still weren't like, you know, 50-year-old guys at that point. Uh, this was odd. It was an odd choice. Uh, then he does that detective bureau go to help bastards and has Josh Shido in it, which was his usual. Um, let's see what else we got here. Oh, that Michitaro Mizushima was also in Underworld Beauty. Again, like I saw with these old guys in it. Um, Youth of the Beast had Shishido in it again. Uh, that one was, oh, actually it was more of a uh, Yakuza film. Uh, so it wasn't what I thought it was in the autobiographical one. Uh, basically, this guy's supposed to be a cop or detective, and he starts going after these two Yakuza bosses and starts basically uh, starting a gang war uh, by acting like 
yeah, I don't even say a tough cop. He's acting more like he's one of them. Uh, you know, strange film. I wouldn't say it's great. It does have uh, Kobayashi and Shishido together, which is usually a good recipe. Uh, but, you know, what do you really think of it? Eh. Uh, Kanto Wander is just a typical Yakuza film or Yakuza film with, uh, once again, Kobayashi. Uh, let's see who else we got here. I'm just flipping through the various films. Yeah, Gate of Flesh, like I mentioned, that's uh, crazy. Uh, but again, feels a little too arty for me in a lot of ways. Uh, basically, it's post-World War II kind of thing. So everything's all bombed out and crappy. And here's all these hookers living there, you know, basically squatting uh, and sniping at each other, you know, catfighting through the entire movie. And he comes in there, and basically he hits, you know, he's a gangster. He gets shot or whatever the hell. And they kind of nurse him to health, and he winds up hanging out with them. And, of course, this causes problems because there's this, all these hookers here that are all lonely or whatever the hell. And there's this guy that they eh, – I, I wouldn't say he's like super hot, but you know, it's a, a guy that's like, okay, he's reasonably attractive, and there he is in their midst. So the catfighting gets even worse. Very strange film, and a lot of people are like, "Oh yeah, this is so great because it shows the plight of you know whatever prostitutes in Japan in the forties or fifties, whatever else." It's just I don't really understand the appeal of it. I mean, there are moments. It's, it's not as bad as it sounds. It's not like a melodrama in that respect uh, because it's got Yoshishido in it because it is the Seijin Suzuki film. It's got more color to it than that. It's, it's not a color film. I remember, I thought it was black and white, but. Uh, Yet it's just like, eh, it's, a, it's an also ran. And therefore, of course, you get the art house people, oh, look, what a wonderful film. You know, all those like serious, like pull up their ass types. Uh, they think that stuff is great. Uh, but Brandon the Kill is really my favorite of these damn things. Now, first off, there's this girl in it who actually is, I've mentioned before about the Ainu. She actually is Ainu. Very odd looking, but yet extremely attractive girl named uh, Anumari. Uh, basically, Shishido is a hitman, so you already you get into like Bronson the mechanic type territory, right? Uh, and for some strange reason, because it's a Suzuki film, there's all this odd stuff going on. Like, oh well, he's a, a hitman, and he's involved with this one girl's. I thought she was kind of boring, but you know, typical like gangster mall type. And his whole shtick is that he only gets turned on when like he's eating rice. <laughs> So, so he throws like stuff in his mouth and like handfuls of hot rice. I'll cook me a pot of rice, yeah. And then they start like getting it on. Uh, and then there's this business where he gets involved with this other girl I've mentioned, and she's kind of like not just his downfall in the uh, the filmic sense of okay, well he gets involved with a uh, whatever the hell a, a dangerous girl who brings him down. No, she's like really weird and kind of artsy and like a goth girl, uh, and she has this thing where she like pins live you know because if you remember i even my mother had one of these damn things back in the 60s there was a popular thing among girls at least younger girls to have like you know butterfly collections and they would kind of press them in like scrapbooks which is to me is like wow that's really strange but whatever uh and i remember seeing my mother's one so this girl does this but she will pin them live to like her board which is like sadistic and like oh what the hell is this and it becomes sort of a metaphor for what she does to him later you know she oh yeah it's like it's almost like saying okay i got a notch on my belt and i kind of ruined this guy's life it was all right he was already a scumbag but nonetheless uh i brought him down and that's kind of the metaphor like oh look i just pinned this other butterfly to my wall 
the film, if you go by a plot, once again, it doesn't make a fucking bit of sense in a lot of respects. I mean, there's not that much of the typical here's point A to point B to point C crime film or you know whatever else you want to call it. Uh, it's bizarre, and that's why it's sort of in a lot of ways considered an art house film. But is it really? I mean, you know, is this really an art house film? Can you really put this next to an Antonioni film? Can you even put it next to somebody who's a lot more anarchic and colorful and shoot from the hip like Buñuel? No, it really doesn't fit. It's these films are strange, strange as shit, um, and yet really kind of arresting visually uh, because uh, Suzuki was a. Uh, I mean, yeah, I'm sure he was working with other cinematographers and things like that, but he had to be calling the shots because a lot of these films, if not all of them, are extremely visually arresting, uh, whether they are in black and white or color, which is another thing that's interesting. Because a lot of times, like, okay, well, somebody like Sarno, for example, works really well with black and white, uh, but even though I prefer his later films or the color things, a lot of people don't like them. They go, okay, that doesn't work for me. Here, both work, and he'll kind of go back and forth depending on whatever budget he got from his bosses that week. Uh, so he'll do a couple black and whites. He'll do a couple colors. He'll, one film will be black and white. The next one will be color. The next one will be black and white again. Uh, but by the time he got to this particular film, uh, the guy who was running the cots who took a look at it and says, what the hell did you give me? All I wanted you to give me was a film about you know, a hitman. It was a, a crime film. They were popular. It's like, I can't do anything with this. And so, I mean, they did put it out anyway. I don't think it did very well. And he's like, you know, this doesn't make any freaking sense. You're an idiot. Get out of here. And they fired him and blacklisted him for 10 years. And yet, when you watch this film, it's like, you can't stop watching. And you could say something like, all right, Tokyo Drifter, all right, whatever. You know, it's strange, but it's not really – it seems more flawed than anything else. Like who's the amateur that put this out, who edited this thing? Uh, you've watched something like you know, Underworld Beauty or Go to Hell Bastards or Take Him at the Police Fan. Like, oh, this is a little strange, but it's pretty much like you know the other ones we're describing here, like an odd crime film meets spy film meets bank heist film, whatever, uh, a little bit of noir, whatever. This one really stands out. It's like I don't think I've ever seen anything like it before or since, and I see a lot of strange stuff. Um, is it you know utterly insane? Like I've seen some films that are just like, wow, where the hell did that come from? Is it something like you can sit there and laugh your ass off like you know, Miami Connection or something? No, but it's really like you're sitting there watching and like – I don't really get this, but I think I really like it. And the the shots he's getting, the imagery he's evoking, and the utter bizarreness of it goes back to what we were talking about earlier, the, the way we were kind of floundering around trying to find the words to describe what makes these films special. It's all in there. It like encapsulates everything about it. Um, I just really, really like this film. It is probably the film that made me love Joe Shishito, uh, and definitely the film that made me love to Seiji Suzuki to the extent that I do. Um, how about you? What would you want to say about these or any of these films? Honestly, I can go on a couple more, but those are really the important ones. Please don't. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, because because I'm I'm aware of and I have seen a lot of these films, but I think I think. Taking them apart as much as much as you're doing, which is which is quite admirable, is is I I'm just that there's a, a sameness that comes up after a while. Yeah. There's you know it's I I'm not hearing a lot of 
well, here's the difference. Okay, here's another picture by another guy, but it's bringing up, it's just made in a later time period. It's bringing up uh, similar themes. Yeah. Um, That's the problem with this. It's it's like the same problem you encounter with spaghetti westerns and yeah, not all of them, but exactly. a lot of Eurospy. No, I, yeah. I mean, you yes. know, it's like it's all very samey. You know, you mentioned that we did a couple weeks ago the Mexican wrestling films. They're very samey. You know, there's there's things you can mention that are different about them. There are different directors, there are different stars, there are slight differences to genre or feel. But, you know, basically it's like, well, yeah, these are great, and you can watch like dozens of them or just a couple and get basically the same idea. Okay, I really like this. I want to see more, but are they really different? Are you getting something different out of this one over that one from the same director well, no, or I mean, sometimes some, in between? Some are definitely better than others, and that's for sure, yeah. like the ones you touched upon. But I, I, I think we would be doing ourselves a disservice if, if we were to go further and, and to uh, examine other similar pictures because yeah. I have a friend of, of alienating an audience or losing an audience. Right. Um, the people who are listening to our show, um, um, because I, I think they're getting the gist of it, but I, but I think, you know, unless they're hardcore, you know, Japanese fans, I just think that people, because people don't like to get preached to. And I don't want to do that to them too much. Today. Right. Yeah, and the danger we have on a show like this too. Yeah. That's basically it, anyway. Those are the people that I thought were important to touch on within these genres. Well, no, uh, they are. Uh, but from there, there's really not a lot else that um, that you can dissect and pull apart without specifically going at the plots of each film or anything like that. And we don't do that anyway. That's not the way we operate. Um, but I know that you had wanted to touch on, and we certainly got some time if you wanted to dig in a little bit, uh, the leader Nakatsu, because yes, Nakatsu was kind of known originally for Sun Tribe films, and then you have this brief interstitial period where they got into this sort of noir-esque uh, crime film sort of a thing, which then became their borderless action, which is kind of a deliberate, okay, I want to get something that is more – Americanized, but with elements of what I'm seeing in France and you know the UK with the, the spy type films, uh, mm-hmm. you know it's it's more than just Japanese. This is going to appeal to even though we're making them for a Japanese audience, they're bringing in elements of so we don't have to import all these USA films, all these films from Europe. Uh, we're making something that feels more like uh, in effect what they said borders. It feels more international, uh, and that was really where they kind of excelled, but. When people think of Nakatsu, that's not what they think of. You know, yeah, they might oh. say, okay, well, Seijin Suzuki worked there, and they may go into oh, Joshi Shido, Akira Kobayashi, people we named, even Koryashi Kurahara, if they really know their stuff. But right. they're going to say, oh, yeah, that's the guys that put out the pinky films, you know, the, the softcore porn. And that's kind of where they went next. And that's actually why a lot of these people, a lot of the directors we mentioned, a lot of the stars we mentioned, certainly a lot of the females, I think Okaji and things like that, said, all right, screw it. I'm either going to retire or I'm going to go work for another studio like Toei or Toho or whoever uh, doing similar stuff. But you know, I'm certainly not going to get involved with this because I didn't you know, build myself a career just so I can go and strip off and be in some like you know, throwaway films or some old guy to go in the middle of the day and beat off to. Uh, and that's kind of what they do for the next you know, many years. I think it was from – when did they start doing those things? Maybe 71 or 2 to about 70? 
Uh, well, they kind of stopped at one point. I know they had, they'd stopped in the early 80s, and then they picked it up again and did a couple more, but it wasn't that successful maybe in the 90s. Um, but, yeah, I mean, from here on out, they figured that, you know, we can make a lot of money and bang these things out. Like, really, if you want to talk about thousands well, there's, of there's hun- Yes, hundreds of these things, for God's yeah. sake. I mean, you um, can go back to the, the yeah. Thomas Weiser book, you know, the Japanese sex films. You could do – you mentioned Jasper Sharp. I know he did a book on these, Behind the Pink Curtain, I think it was. Uh, mm-hmm. There was uh, – who is this guy's creation? Uh, you know, Jack Sargent, all those people. Uh, that's an infamous company. They spot good stuff, but I hear they ripped everybody off. Uh, they put out one or two on these, like you know, Tokyo <sighs> or Babylon Blue. Uh, basically, what they started doing was – the equivalent of porn, but what happens is Japan is a lot more uptight than we are in a lot of ways. So yeah, and this gets debatable and this gets tricky because I know what you're going to say. Yeah. Because I I I have been working on an article uh, from one of the magazines I write for, and I've been watching a lot of these. Oh no! And it's funny. Some are digitized. Some are have artful shooting, so we don't see what you think we're going to see. Right. And some are blatantly obvious that, yeah, that's what's going on. <laughs> so it's very, very interesting how actually the whole pink film thing actually has a... Uh, I used this last night in a post of mine. Armchair reviewing thing. I hate armchair reviewing. You gotta see the stuff, y'all. Yeah. Um. Uh. One one of your your friends or one of somebody you interviewed, you actually had on your show, mm-hmm. said something stupid last night on Facebook. <laughs> and 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 uh, I'm not gonna say who it was, but you know they canceled vinyl, the the Scorsese Jagger show. Yes. Which is fine, and I think it's a very adequate representation of. It's like, well, I've never been to New York, but I know from writing record reviews back in the day that uh, these things didn't actually happen. I'm like, well, I, how about enough armchair reviewing? I <laughs> was there. I've been to these clubs. Dance yep. Terry. I didn't list them. But, you know, Dance Terry, Peppermint Lounge, you know, CBGBs. This is what went down. It, look, it looked fine. It looked fine. What are you looking for? Exactly you know? right. Are you looking a lot, for, actually, like, that sort of version? Right. I think sometimes people look for, well, it's not the cinematic version I envisioned. Well, no. It's confirmation bias. There's people out there, and I notice it more with like younger crowds, more like uh, millennials and post-millennials, but it's not exclusive to them. Where, especially if they haven't actually experienced, if they haven't lived that much of a life, or they haven't lived the, uh, I hate to say on the wild side, you know, but I'll take that from Lou Reed, you know, they haven't walked on the wild side a little bit. Uh, and then they'll sit there and they'll go by what they read in a book, or maybe saw in a couple of shitty movies on Skinamax or whatever the hell else, and say, oh, yeah, well, it wasn't like that because, you know, uh, it, it should really be like this. Well, no, not when I was there. Sure, it was just sure. like that. <laughs> Yeah, you know, forgive me for, for taking a little left turn there, but what I'm trying to say is sometimes people lob in this whole pinky violence or Roman porno, which is another name these films are, are known uh, known under, as, oh, yeah, they were all digitized, and uh, that's the way no, it no. is, and they shot them. No, it's not like that. Each director worked a particular way. 
And, well, um, I'll say this, um, just jumping in there, because first off, Pinky Violence is something very different. Pinky Violence was more yeah. girl gangs, uh, usually biker gangs, not necessarily. Uh, female-based. Some of those, yes. Yeah, female-based JD films, really. Uh, and I have a lot of them. I, I really like, uh, what's your name there? The girl that was in the Zero, uh, Zero Woman Red Handcuffs. Uh, not Rico Ike. But there was another girl that was more of like a husky voice, very pretty. I used to really like her stuff, uh, but I can't think of her name right now. Uh, but Zero Woman Red Handcuffs is definitely uh, one of her films. Uh, and they had like Pinky Violence sets and stuff like that they used to put out and all kinds of things. Uh, she was actually also a, sort of a singer because they took a couple of them and made them singers as well. Or in uh, Ike's case, I think she was a singer and then became uh, the Pinky Violence star as well. But they're more of, like I said, JD-type films, except that because they have all women starring in it and because it's Japan, they always end up – you know, even though they're tough and they kick the guys' asses and whatever, yeah, it's gonna get politically incorrect. And then some, eventually, some thug or some gangster, or whatever, is gonna get them. They're gonna tie them up. They're gonna strip them. You get to see the boobs, wherever the hell. And maybe they'll even do some uncomfortable torture sequence. Nothing horrible. It's not like Saw, but you know, it, for a crime film kind of thing. Like, oh, geez, really gotta go there again. So that's what Pinky Violence is. It was really kind of a thing that uh, Toei was really known for. Um, but. The one that the pink films themselves, like you mentioned, that most for the most part, at least in the early days, they actually mm-hmm. were filming these things and just did it artfully. So you would see enough, but you wouldn't see penetration, if you will, uh, right, because right. this was highly illegal. That you couldn't see. The thing with Japan was they had an issue where you couldn't see hair. Uh, and this is back in the days when you know nobody was doing Brazilian waxes and all this bullshit they do now, looking like a fucking Barbie doll. Uh, so basically, you couldn't see your genitals. Uh, so they actually had a thing in posters at the time. If you look at uh, posters of Japanese pink films, you're going to see a lot of these girls. And yeah, you won't see nothing down there. They'll be like covering up or blocking it or another picture will show or text or whatever, you know, blocking up the uh, quote important areas. And yet they'll always have their arms over their head or something, and they'll have our hairy armpits. And that was kind of like the substitution that they used. Like, okay, mm-hmm. here is – you know, we can't get hair down there, but it's okay to have it there. So here you go. We're going to show you some hair. And <laughs> it was – the films were kind of like that. They didn't go to that same exact territory, even though that was in the posters all the time. But what they did was they had this thing called a, a Maibari, I believe it was, where it was this kind of uncomfortable – you read about this, Star, Star Wars talking about it all the time, this uncomfortable – Overly taped up strip. It was almost like a, a cup, like when you play sports, like a jock strap kind of thing. And they put the cup there so you don't get injured. That sort of thing to cover up the women's pubes. And that would be there just in case, you know, they slipped and it caught in a shot or something. And once in a while, you think you'll see it. Like, oh, what was that? There was an odd shadow down there. That wasn't what I thought it was going to be. Uh, but that was the main thing they used. And then later well, on, they started doing digital fog, well, not digital fogging, but they started fogging it somehow. And eventually they started doing mosaics. So a lot of stuff in the 90s, I remember they had – I remember I used to get off the Tower, uh, tower uh, video, and they would have the, all the Japanese mosaic porn, which already was started getting into the cosplay stuff. It was around the time of like Evangelion and all that crap. But you would see basically they were pornos except that that area would have these like you know digital squares all over. Like, what the hell is this? Uh, so that's kind of where it led to. But originally – the actual uh, pink films, nine times out of ten, they get to my bari, and they're either not going to show you, quote, the important stuff, the prurient bits like they would over here, or you know, if it does get caught there, you, you, in case they got that my bari covering it up. So that's the difference. Well, 
And, and one thing I found out, because I actually watched, I actually watched the extras. Oh, no. <laughs> I actually watched, like, a few minutes interviews with cast and crew or whoever still alive. And one of the things I found out is that it also depends on who's distributing the film. Like, apart from who produced the movie, they might have they might have a print they deliver, and it's 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 sometimes different from the distributor will alter the picture. So sometimes our, our perception of what actually was shot is way different because whoever was distributing the film um, tend to kind of muck with things. Um, very very interesting kind of so, convoluted thing. Another thing I wanted to say is. <laughs> The literal English translations for a lot of these Nakatsu pictures, the the, the, the genre we're, we're talking about right now, could never be shown here. So they yes. kind of tried to yeah. do nicey nicey versions of these things. Um, if I may, just like the first year out, um, they started out pretty innocently with apartment life, affair in the afternoon. Oh, that sounds pretty good, right? You know, right. Uh, Japanese is unpronounceable uh, unless you're Japanese. <laughs> uh, I, I, you know, the, the fourth picture in was uh, I want to see this one anyway. Co-ed report. You ghost white breath. You know, sounds like fun. <laughs> nice family movie. But we start getting a little carried away with Sex Rider, Wet Highway. Think about that one. Oh and yeah. That picture, I've actually, I saw this one. Really? Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but the thing, the thing is, it's it was, it's a very familiar story. It's about a guy who lusts after this woman, and and he's like, he's uh, what's the word? He uh, he doesn't stalk her. He's uh, you know, he's just transfixed with her. Yeah. And so he he throws himself in front of her car. He fakes his death. So he can rape her. I mean, who thinks yeah. of shit like this? You it's know, true. It's just... And these films, even though they're crazy and they tend to be very politically correct in that respect, there is a lot of, you know, forced sex eventually at some point or other. Yeah, uh, yeah, not yeah. always. It's not always. That's not what the genre is about. But it does show up often enough, more more than you would think. But you write these titles. Oh. I mean, you've got a lot of them that translate to something about rape. A lot of things that translate to something about. You know, being underage, you know, things about, you know, whatever. There's ones like Assy Fingers. And uh, you know, so when they bring them over here, they kind of change the titles a little bit uh, just because, you know, they would never get away with it. Uh, you know, things like I well, Like the Fuck, more or less. They would say on the film title. Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. Rake, and they like to do hard, things like, like – You're putting in like golden – Golden Wizard Woman, and then you're watching the movie, like, rape me hard, you bastard. Like, what? Yeah, and it's a wrong movie. Things about no, urination no. or whatever, and yet when you watch the film, it's never as bad as the title suggests. So it's misleading in although, every way. Although, although I, I, I've seen enough of these, unfortunately. Uh, <laughs> ur- urination is a popular theme. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it's like... It's like uh, if if a, if a villain in quotations kind of male, it's usually the male uh, is like really after a chick and and she's she's we uh, she's like not 
not being coerced by him. She's resisting. That's the word I'm looking for. She's resisting his advances. He's eventually going to get get her uh, in his arms and probably rub her through her panties because this is in the concert <laughs> picture. And she'll get so hot. But what can they not show you? You know, they can't show you right. what they can't show you. So she'll urinate and wet her <laughs> panties. So I'm like, so wait a minute. You can't show a wet pussy, but you could show a girl urinating through her panties. Yep. Explain this to me. Which it's I see crazy. often. It's and, crazy. You know, basically there's a couple of things. If you were personally speaking, if you were going to look into the pink films, I would highly suggest Star of Dave Beauty Hunting, uh, which I think came over here, Star of yeah. David Beauty Hunting. Fantastic S and M Oh, it's rough or right. It's it's crazy. Uh very S and M. Um but think like the image from Radley Metzger crossed with Jacob's story of oh uh made into a Japanese pink film and in some aspects lighter but in some aspects rougher than either of the other two. Uh there's definitely uncomfortable moments to be sure. There's there's subjects are being touched on, like, whoa, okay. But it's really, really great. Um well, I, I on the more arty side, like, uh, yeah. or, uh, like horny diver, tight shellfish. Yes, but you like that one? I was bored by number that. Number eighteen. I, I like the girl. In that. Well, there's a lot of pretty girls in these. That's one of the reasons that you watch it. Because even Kiyosato. Like... Um, um, yeah. Well, she's like a village type girl, and this one's more of a romantic kind of. Well, it's one of those uh, diver films because that was a thing that they had back then as well, uh, even in the 50s where they would have girl dri- diver films because the thing with girl divers is, of course, they were all topless. And they actually would, you know, in local villages and things like that, they would go diving for whatever, you know, oysters or whatever. And that was well, to be out there all day topless. So. Yeah, you're right. But this, this actress, in quotations, seemed <laughs> to appeal to me because she didn't seem to be the usual – Liked horny working girl from five to nine, which is uh, that was okay. The one I was uh, going to say though, office? yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no that's yeah, right because yeah. the, the office ones often do work a little better. Uh, actually, one that's still waiting for the bring over, and that clown did tell me he was going to bring it over, you know, five years ago, but it still hasn't. Uh, is one that where they're going to have to change the title because it was simply rape, uh, and that was one of those Hasabe films uh, featuring Naomi Tani. Uh, but again, it's an office set one, and a lot of those do really work. Um, uh, yeah, Momo's Lips. Momo's Lips is the classic. Yeah, uh, what, I was going to bring that up in a minute because another thing about these films is they like to find people that were popular actresses or idol singers. In that case, it was uh, Momo uh, What the hell's her last name? Uh, she was a big deal back then. Uh, there, there's oh, actually yeah, a couple of them like that. Maybe uh, there, there was a couple of people that were really big back then. I know um, who was the one there, uh, Seiko Masuda, and they would have a whole bunch of things like, "Oh, Seiko's white breasts" or whatever. And he had, they found some a couple of girls actually who sort of looked like her, and they would be the substitution. You get that in porn nowadays in the U.S. too. Or, you know, they have someone that sort of looks like a celebrity in that way. Guys who are into it, you know, see her get you know nasty stuff done uh, in one respect or another. And this was really big over there, but. Another one I wanted to mention was uh, Debauchery, which is actually one of the better ones. Uh, oh, yes. I really like that one. Again, very kinky, a bit s and uh, a bit bel de jour in plot, but not as artsy-fartsy as Buñuel. It was just funny to say, oh, Buñuel's artsy-fartsy. Our, our, co- our co-host is give, giving us a little hints about his predilections. 
you know, there's, there's some no good more. stuff. No more. Okay. <laughs> there's some good stuff out there, uh, but you know, a lot of bad ones too. I know the yes. same clown we were talking about was. Please don't, please don't get confused by cool titles because yes. the movie could be kind of dull, like Nurse Girl Dorm Sticky Fingers. So you oh, that was lousy. That was Assy Fingers. That was what I was talking about. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You think you're get a great movie, and, and unfortunately... The one this clown was all excited about was something about, you know, they changed the title, obviously, like Eros, whatever, school, but it was really like, you know, rape school or some crap like that, get on the yeah. bus. And he was so excited about this film, and it was fucking horrible. It was the worst film this particular company ever released. And he was so excited. He thought it was the greatest. Uh, it's basically a bad comedy with some you know, typical Nakatsu-type uh, softcore sex in it. And you know, again, it sounds horrible. Like, oh, my God, rape, whatever. No, no, it's, it's really not. It, they do get into uncomfortable territory, but – Honestly, you know, I don't know if you just get used to watching this crap over in Japan. You see how they are. It's more fantasy-based, but a lot of it is actually, I hate to say consensual, but I remember in, I, I mentioned Hasabe's rape before. It's actually, you know, she's like a horny girl that's all hot for like the other guys in her office, and then eventually they, you know, get hot enough and she tempts them enough that they go and grab her, and it's more like... Um, uh, like every t- other office, right? <laughs> it, it's more like a woman's fantasy of that, you know. It's, it's more like a consensual, take me by force kind of a thing. Being like, oh wait, I just got attacked by an alleyway by some pervert, and oh my god, what am I gonna do now? That you get a lot more of that in these sort of films, despite how horrible it sounds. Uh, but you know, either way you slice it, it's very politically incorrect. All these films are. Uh, they're Always definitely in a clock. there's probably one of my favorites is. Uh... The one that's like a Jallo. It's fashioned on a Jallo. Uh, oh yeah, what was that zoom up? Uh, was that Rape Apartments? It was one of the zoom yeah, ups. The yeah, one of the zoom up. I think it's Beaver Book Girl. Okay. And uh, that was really good. <laughs> yes, yes, folks. That is a name, Beaver Book Girl. You know, think about that one. Uh, <laughs> the actress is really terrific. She's a decent actress. She. Has a well. We have to presume she has a very hairy bush because <laughs> <laughs> because they're they're they're, they're actually not. Uh, but it has very hairy underarms. Um, which is the funny thing about this? The the rival studio uh, that was doing the Pinka Igas, um, is it uh, to- Toy Toy? Right. Um, we're doing. See, the Nikatsu sex movies were doing very, very well. And after a while, all the pictures you were just talking about, that whole genre, the majority of it, was just dead in the water because what was what were they pumping out? At the point of maybe 20, um, 20 a year, if not more, were these pink films, these Roman pornos, what they were calling them. And so the rival studios, like Toei, uh, we're actually trying to outdo them by making some of their pictures harsher. Now, not only is Nakasa pictures are family friendly, um, <laughs> and I'm being lighthearted <laughs> with that. Um, some of these Toei films are really nasty. Um, so I think at some point, 
the constant try to one up their rivals. So yep. we we started to get toward the late uh, late 80s around the time that the whole thing was just kind of winding down. Um, the Office Love series uh, yes. was very popular. Yep. And uh, after seeing like seven of these things, uh, Behind Closed Doors was one of the better ones. Um, only hey, for... Yes. You had a couple of starlets that got really famous through this. Uh, Naomi yeah. Tani was so famous for her. They, they called them SM films, but they really weren't. It was more of that whole shibari, let's tie girls up in those fancy rope kind of things. Uh, but that's what she was known for because she was... She wasn't like that thick, but she was more fleshy than you would expect, especially from a Japanese girl. She had big breasts. Mm-hmm. She was kind of, um, I, again, fleshy. She's not really overweight. She was a, she was a very sexy woman, really nice body. Uh, and I don't really like, quote, big girls. So, that, you know, you can picture we're not talking about uh-huh. fleshy in the sense that people think nowadays. <laughs> no. Uh, but you're more to the Zaftig types. Uh, but, you know, uh, she, sometimes, sometimes. It depends on which way the wind blows. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> She definitely had more flesh on her than you would expect from a lot of these small Japanese girls, and therefore they thought she looked great on camera doing this. Plus, she tended to come off more dignified, so she seemed more like you know, the lady of the manor, and she would be kind of petulant while they were doing this to her, so it gave an extra flourish. But this woman made dozens and dozens of films, uh, made an entire career out of it, in fact. Uh, and one of her more popular ones, she did uh, a film called Flower and Snake, which isn't that great in her version. But later on, once you get into the 90s, there were a pair of remakes starring, of all people, Aya Sugimoto, who used to be a calendar girl, basically, who became a J-pop idol. And I remember one of her songs was uh, Boys, uh, which is actually a European dance song. Uh, Boys. Uh, and they brought it over there. And after her career had ended, she basically started making films, and she started making erotic films. And I'll tell you, I forget whether it was Flower and Snake 1 or 2, the ones from the 90s. Uh, really, really, again, one of the high points. Very erotic and dark. Uh, Teruishi films, once again. Um, yeah, they are. Teruishi, yeah. Ron Masaki, and those, are, popular. Those, are, those are two of the movies that Tom Weiser – uh, hooked on uh, when he had Asian Trash Cinema, the, yes. the zine, and yep, uh, uh, what was the name of his company? Video Search in Miami, well, fucking yep. wacky title uh, for for a company. And he wrote a book. Uh, was it a McFarlane book? It might have been. I can't remember. No, I don't think and, it was McFarlane. I actually have a couple of them. He did a couple basically on Japanese films per se, and they covered all sorts well, of films, crime book, films. Though. This was a big, this was a big fat. It was book. a fat one, yeah, but, and that was the one just on the sex films. I still have that. Film, yeah, but, yeah, yeah, yeah. And the thing was, though, with Tom was, I, I, I'm not sure whether sometimes he got things in trade and they were like really bad quality copies, and he assumed we're not, we're not outing you, Tom Wise. I could care less, but. <laughs> I think he assumed that some people were in the movie and some people made the movie because some of the things didn't make sense. And then when you got the movie, it wasn't the same. Yep. So I, I, I don't want to say he didn't see the movie, but he did get a lot of people hooked on this genre. So I have to give him credit yeah. for that. And you got to say also that there were a good couple thousand films in that book. It was like a, a reference book, more or less. 
And yeah. yeah, you did get the sense he couldn't possibly have seen them all. I know a lot of them were translated by his wife, who was Japanese, uh, and maybe she had brought back memories of them. Maybe they got it from other sources, like third, you know, secondhand or third hand. Because who knows? Just in the, in the sense of being comprehensive, like okay, I've seen well, you know two hundred of these things, and there's a thousand of them. Can you give me info on them? You know, I'm assuming that's what went down. But yeah, I mean, it was it was definitely a start for the, the era it was put out back in the start. Like, like a lot of people, like a lot of people turned on to the stuff, and then the more kinkier, the more stranger, the more outre. Yep. People start to try to track him down. Of course, he conveniently had video search of Miami. Like, hey, I have this movie. <laughs> um, so that whole thing started. And and good or bad, it was problematic, but we won't go into that tonight. Um, yeah. But, you know, uh, he, you know he, he had a decent writing style. He had the writing style of someone... Joe Blow could pick it up and like, hey, I might want to. I like reading about these moves. I might want to try and find these films. Yep. As opposed to somebody we named Chuck a couple times tonight, Jasper Sharp, who is very eloquent on his audio commentaries. And, and he, he tends to be very academic. Yes, he's very. Yes, thank you. That's what I was going to get to. You stole my thunder. <laughs> <laughs> yes, Jasper is very academic, and 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 um. So is Stephen Thrower, another guy. Not as, much, not as much, Not as much. I think Jasper. Thrower is more readable and uh, fleshed out, I guess. There's more color to his writing. Uh, Sharp is much yeah. drier. Sharp is much drier, but Sharp is very much more academic. Uh, 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 so, uh, so, yeah, reading his thing is full of information. Please do track down his book. I want to give the guy some, some kudos. I want to give him some some accolades here. He's got, you know, the wiser Thor, uh, wiser, excuse me, wiser Jasper. I would, I would say go for the Jasper because you know, historically he's got the info there. He's just very dry read. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, I would say please read that one. And then uh, if you're going to get the wiser books, they're fun if they're still in print. Um, look, look, trying to find some of these fucking movies because those are not the titles he said they yeah. are. That drove me yeah. nuts. He had titles in there that don't really exist, at least not the way that they come over here or well, that you can yeah. find them internationally. It was like I mean, they might have twenty titles for her. Who knows? But you know, well, what he listed. Like, for example, I already mentioned female gym coach, jump and straddle. You know, why doesn't I have horny gym teacher, wet and dripping? You know, <laughs> it's possible. You know, I, I'm not kidding. His his translation of these things, uh, whatever. Yep. And, you know, it's quite possible to give him a, a bone of that maybe his Japanese wife said that is a little translation. Yeah, they might have translated straight from the Japanese is what I was thinking. Uh, and actually, yeah. is that the one? Because that's actually one of the ones that came over here, if if I'm thinking it's the proper one. Because I know it had to do with a dance student, and they were in this weird apartment with the mirror like, you know, like ballet students have. And yet it was yeah. a pink film. That was another one that was pretty good. I did enjoy that. Uh, oh, yeah, uh, there are some really good ones. I mean, I will say this. You know, I, I mentioned uh, I think on another show that my wife is not really into this kind of. You know, once you start getting into real sleazy, like you know, banging up porn kind of thing, no interest whatsoever. Like, well, who are these sluts? You know, this is gross, whatever. But okay. you start showing things like you know an Emmanuel film, or not so much Tinto Brass, but you know more like the the French style 
uh, you know, Roland's uh, Find Me the French Way, that kind of a thing. And it's like, oh, well, okay. Which, which you're talking about so, real erotica, real erotica. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And these pictures, while they can be very politically incorrect, and while their titles really suggest like, oh, my God, or sometimes even describing the plots, like, oh, yeah, this girl goes here, and then she gets raped. Like, whoa, wait a minute. But it's the way that they filmed them, the way that the actual plots go down, the – I don't want to say the intent, but the feel of them is much more leaning towards that. It's leaning towards an Italian, a French-style erotica than it is you know, porn, even though that's part of the title, like a Roman porno. Well, yeah, they, they, they were trying to say it was romantic porno. So it's like, okay, you've got elements of the porno where it's like, okay, we're going to see this because of flesh. You know, you, you got people basically having sex, and that's kind of what the plots are going to revolve around. And yet, there's got that romantic element. So in other words, they're basically softcore films, hard softcore films, uh, hard softcore films with a strange misogynistic Japanese bent uh, that really kind of pushed the envelope in a lot of ways, like we had mentioned when we were talking about it. But and you know everything from like urination to getting tied up to God knows what else. Uh, but nonetheless, that's what they were going for. So really, they could be considered bizarre softcore films uh, if, if for anybody who has not seen one of these things. And again, you know, some of the titles I mentioned for sure, and some of the ones you mentioned, they're definitely worth looking into more than others. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know what's another really good one? Uh, it's more of a non-sploitation. School of the Holy Beast. I really oh, enjoyed that one. that's one of the best. It is. It's really good. It's actually and one of the best non-sploitations. Arrow, those bastards who like to charge an arm and a leg, are are, are putting together a special edition of that it's in the U.S. Yeah. yeah well, I still got the original of the, wherever the DVD company was, uh, thankfully. But, yeah, I mean, that's that's really one of the better, not just of these Roman yeah, porn things, but Mondo of the... Macabro, uh, uh may have done that, if I'm not... Mistaken. Mondo also did a couple others. Yeah, like Runa's Confession, lesser ones, ones that weren't as good as that. But yeah, that that one was definitely killer. Um, School of the Holy Beast is a really good one. Well, you know, we start getting into different levels of transgression. Right, that's true too. Yeah. But just overall, if people are interested by any of the stuff we talked about tonight, personally, I would say get yourself in the Katsu Noir set. Maybe get yourself the Kuroyoshi Kurohara set. Uh, definitely try out if you're interested in these things we're talking about later. Uh, well, actually, go Branded the Kill is another good one. Maybe Underworld Beauty. Uh, the stuff we're talking about later, the more Roman porn stuff, we mentioned a couple of them that are definitely worth looking into. Um, you know, you can get an idea from a couple. You know, you don't have to go head yeah, first. Yeah, Criterion has youth, youth, youth of the Beast. That's true. Right. Yeah. If you pick up certain ones, uh, you know, more ones we were recommending, uh, you can get an idea of what this genres or genres have to offer and then see where you want to go from there. Sometimes you say, oh, man, it's not for me. Other times you might say, okay, well, I picked up a copy of, you know, Lone Wolf and Cub, and I'm, I really want to see something else. Let me go check out The Razor. And now, okay, I really like that, even though it was really over the top. So I'm going to go check out Sleepy Eyes of Death, and I'm going to go to Lady Snowblood. Same idea with this. So there's lots of places you can go. Uh, certainly the uh, Seijin Suzuki uh, catalog is worth check, looking into. Uh, certainly the uh, Toro Ishii catalog if you're interested in more comic booky and bizarre stuff that sometimes really pushes the envelope, it's worth looking into. The Koryoshi Kurohara stuff worth looking into. Craze Fruit. Um, you know, there's a lot of things that you could just take as signposts 
and see if you want to continue. Do you want to see any more SunDrive films after seeing, you know, either the Warped Ones or uh, Crazed Fruit? Do you want to see any more noir films after seeing, you know, Rusty Knife and I Am Waiting? Do you want to see any more, uh, you know, whatever, Seijin Suzuki films after seeing Branded to Kill? Uh, you know, go from there, go from the signposts and then expand out from hours from that. Uh, of course, the pinky stuff is an acquired taste. It's more of an adult crowd. But again, if you're going into it looking for, I'm going to watch, you know, something that's going to get me all hot. Well, yeah, it may if you're into transgressive odd erotica. But if you're looking for porn, forget it. It's not there. So it's a very strange niche market that will appreciate this stuff. Obviously somebody does because they've been putting out a lot of it of late, but uh, that's the bottom line. So anything you wanted to say about all that? Oh, no, that's a good tie up. That's a good time. We hope you enjoyed tonight's show. We'll be back next week. (laughs) (laughs) Hopefully no technical difficulties next week. Uh, But next week, uh, week 40, we'll be talking the angry young man in winter, Oliver Reed. Uh, while American audiences would later throw to the likes of Clint Eastwood, Lee Marvin, Steve McQueen, and James Coburn, one of the earliest tough guy actors of their vintage actually hailed from the UK. Noted as much for his personal volatility and drunken escapades as his intense, angry young man portrayals of out-of-control petty boys and such like, Oliver Reed would display a surprising versatility covering musicals, literary classics, and Shakespearean roles with the same panache and aplomb as he would Hammer Films, cult sci-fi affairs, and wildly homoerotic Ken Russell libido fests. Uh, rivaled only by the mad German pole Klaus Kinski for sheer insanity, both on set and off. Join us next week as we talk one of the most controversial and beloved figures in British cinema history, the late, great Oliver Reed. Uh, so, oh, yeah. Uh, That'll be a great show. Yeah, bring beers. Uh, your host <laughs> will be drunk just for that show. or need Yes. Beers, at least. <laughs> um, well, I should have got drunk tonight at no time. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And then we have one more after that, I believe. Right, that's what we're doing the Eurospar. Yep. Our Eurospy, and then that's our, the end of our current schedule. Right. And we'll be taking uh, a little bit of time off, and then we will uh, figure out what we're going to do next season. I know we had pretty much confirmed that we're going to do a Klaus Kinski show, and we're going to do an Eddie Constantine show. But that's all we have on tap at the moment. We will figure out the rest uh, during our uh, whatever it is, a couple weeks off. I'm assuming it'll be about a month. You know, we, we should be back in uh, either late August or somewhere around there. Uh, but we will see. Uh, so for the next two weeks, like I said, Oliver Reed and Eurospot, uh, hang in there. And uh, hopefully we will, who knows, if we're lucky, we'll find somebody better than Blog Talk to host us. Otherwise, we will just keep plugging along. Uh, so right. anything else you want to say before we close out? No, no, no. We're actually, uh, it's our, yeah. Hope you enjoyed the show, and we'll be back next week. All right. All of Thanks for joining us tonight. We hope you enjoyed our problem-plagued discussion of uh, Nakatsu films. Uh, next week, we talk Oliver Reed. If you'd like to drop us a line or let us know uh, a better server to be on, <laughs> uh, you can contact us at facebook.com forward slash weirdscenes1 or our website, weirdscenes1.wordpress.com. You can listen to us on Twitter at, at weirdscenes1, twitter.com forward slash weirdscenes1. Weird Seasons at the Goldmine, brought to you by the Big Papa Online Network. 